This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nicole Fleming, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of uh, Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine here at MD Anderson. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to participate in my first official uh, podcast. So. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah, so much absolutely. for, for uh, uh, visiting with us. So, Nicole, today we're going to talk about the evaluations of uh, patients with uh, advanced ovarian cancer. And uh, we want to get uh, you know, a, a little bit of uh, information regarding uh, what, what is your standard um, approach in, in, in your practice and in, in this institution with regards to the initial evaluation of a patient that presents to you with uh, presumed advanced ovarian cancer. Right. So definitely the our we feel like our standard approach here is to make sure that the patient has a good quality contrasted uh, CT imaging of uh, both the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, uh, C125, and medical evaluation. And really in that medical evaluation, it's determining the patient's performance status and medical fitness for surgery. And then when when you you mentioned obviously the the imaging modalities you talked about the uh, the CT scans and, and and certainly obviously we we see patients who have already had a number of imaging uh, mm -hmm. studies. I wanted to just get your your thoughts with regards to um, the utility of PET CT or MRI as opposed to CAT scan in determining who's the ideal patient to undergo surgery or the ideal patient to undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Right. Uh, we rely initially on our contrasted CT uh, imaging to determine is there any need for further additional imaging techniques such as PET-CT or MRI. Um, of course, MRI and PET-CT are both costly uh, imaging tests, uh, and so we try to only use those in patients that really need those evaluations. PET-CT can be helpful uh, specifically if there's a questionable area on a contrasted CT imaging uh, test, specifically if it's something that would um, make the patient a stage four uh, diagnosis, so anything um, in the chest area. So say there's an enlarged mediastinal node on a regular contrast-enhanced CAT scan, and you want to further work that up with uh, a PET-CT to determine if there's any um, active disease in that lymph node then a PET-CT could be useful. MRI can also be useful um, in looking at tumor along certain viscera, um, specifically for surgical planning purposes. Um, so we really try to minimize the use of PET-CT or MRI for patients that really need um, need that test. So the, you, you know, certainly I know that there are some uh, newer approaches to fused uh, modalities. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've heard of the, the recent use of uh, PET-MRI combined. Are, are you familiar with, with this uh, technology, and, and are you using it in your practice? Uh, yes, I'm familiar with it. Um, I don't feel that really anywhere it's become a part of standard of care practice. Uh, here at MD Anderson, we do have a fused PET-CT and MRI uh, capabilities. Uh, we are using it as a part of a clinical protocol right now. So any patient that is a candidate for a primary surgery uh, is, and they've already had a contrast-enhanced uh, CAT scan, um, we are offering those patients uh, a PET MRI um, as a part of a protocol with the hopes to use uh, the comparison of the contrast-enhanced CT 
and the PET MRR to see which imaging modality worked best for those patients um, to determine extent of disease at the time of primary surgery. Uh, and really, those patients, um, we start with the diagnostic laparoscopy, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into further, mm -hmm. um, and really kind of using the comparison of contrast-enhanced CT imaging to PET MR to what we find at laparoscopic assessment, and then on to the primary surgery findings. So Nicole, one of the things that obviously we all face is the issue of variability in terms of the, the reporting of the findings on, right. on imaging studies. And, um, and you know, there's been discussions about actually developing what, what would be called a, a structured uh, report from, from the radiologist. In other words, having the radiologist just specifically tell us whether there is disease or not in certain areas of the abdomen and pelvis so that we can plan our approach and we can plan our, our surgery much more effectively. Um, is, is a structural report something that it's in the works or is it, is it part of, uh, of, the, of the standard um, in your institution? And what are your thoughts with regards to a, a specific structural report? Yeah. Um, so a structured report, it's purely just a standardized approach, descriptive report um, that the radiologist uses to describe um, not only the presence of disease at specific locations, but actually the amount of disease in those locations as well. So it's something that we have uh, tried here at MD Anderson, um, and we do have a very large group of radiologists, some that are dedicated uh, geo-oncology radiologists, um, but others, uh, other radiologists also read our reports. So it's really been difficult to uh, really standardize this practice across a very large group of radiologists. One, it's very time intensive. And then what we also found is there's still significant inter-reader variability on how these scans are read, not necessarily identifying tumor at certain locations, but really trying to quantify the amount to make it useful to determine resectability. Um, and so it hasn't become universally a part of our standard practice here, mostly because of um, some of these reasons, um, as well as it does take a significant amount of time and for busy radiologists um, to read in this structured manner is very kind of time and labor intensive for them. So you have been uh, a leader in the evaluation of patients with uh, laparoscopy and, uh, and certainly uh, in trying to set algorithms that will give us a, a better um, uh, uh, understanding and concept of, of ideal patients for surgical resection. Um, you previously published on the utility of uh, laparoscopic evaluation to determine or predict R0 uh, resection. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your, your research and, and the results of your work? Uh, so there have been several studies looking at the utility of a laparoscopic assessment uh, to determine resectability in advanced ovarian cancer. Uh, a lot of work, of course, has been done by uh, Dr. Fogoti, um, as well as uh, recently published uh, data by Dr. Rutten as well, using a very similar laparoscopic assessment. Um, in 2013, here at MD Anderson, we recognized a problem within our uh, uh, own patient population where uh, we were not achieving as high complete gross resection rates um, as we would like. Um, and we know from a prognostic standpoint 
that complete grocery section uh, leads to the highest um, kind of survival rates and prognostic value. Um, so we implemented Dr. Fogoti's algorithm, uh, which uh, takes into account seven anatomic areas for scoring laparoscopically, uh, the peritoneum, uh, diaphragm, liver surface, uh, gastric infiltration, omental disease up to the stomach, uh, bowel infiltration outside of the pelvis, as well as mesenteric disease. Um, and a, a predictive index value score is created from this, and a, a PIV score greater than eight um, led to a positive predictive value of 100% for uh, uh, determining suboptimal resection. Uh, this method has been subsequently modified uh, to a, a PIV score of greater than 10, uh, now taking out uh, if a patient has mesenteric disease or extensive carcinomatosis, uh, miliary in nature along the entire small bowel, then those patients are determined to be unscorable. And so, Nicole, with regards to the concordance, in, in other words, when we evaluate a patient by laparoscopy and, and we see um, the you know, obviously the sites of disease and, and the, and the uh, uh, size of the of the tumor implants, um, is there any correlation that has been found with the extent of disease at the time of actually doing this side of reduction? Does it correlate well? In other words, your laparoscopic assessment with the um, with the findings at surgery. Right. So we did look at this and uh, previously uh, published on this uh, in looking at our uh, patient population that did undergo laparoscopic scoring assessment, uh, followed by a primary a surgical attempt. And we compared what we found at laparoscopy to what we found at the time of primary surgery. And the concordance was actually very high, 96% um, uh, overall concordance. But when we look specifically at each individual disease site, across the board, it was about 80 to 90% uh, concordance. But we did find that the lowest concordance was with bowel infiltration, which was about 75%, so still high, but not as high as the other sites, um, which is consistent with other previously published lit literature. And do you think that the issue with the bowel infiltration is just that we're, we're not really able to assess it well with laparoscopy, or is it because of adhesions? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? I think it's both. Um, I think we've found through now our extensive experience with the laparoscopic assessments is that um, especially when patients have bulky disease, that being able to truly assess the entire extent of the bowel can be difficult. And then when you see an implant on the surface of the bowel, just visually it can be difficult to determine does that require a resection or um, is that something that can be scraped off the surface? And I think it's not until you get in there and are manually kind of um, palpating the bowel and, and running the bowel that you kind of make that determination of uh, how many bowel resections are going to be required. So, Nicole, we, we've spoken about upfront uh, assessment, but obviously, as you know, the, the number of patients undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy now is uh, increasing. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, you know, certainly questions are, are arising naturally. How to evaluate these patients, uh, um, ideally at the time of completion or three or four cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, and also, uh, you know, certainly, w w what is the what is the best approach? Do we go immediately into laparotomy, or do we perform a laparoscopic evaluation after neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So for our patients that undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we use a very similar approach to um, evaluating patients for even primary surgery, which is, again, attaining a very high-quality contrast-enhanced uh, CT imaging, and then, again, an evaluation of medical fitness for surgery. Um, we only consider patients that have had at least a partial response 
to at least to stable disease for uh, candidacy for interval cider reduction, those patients that have progressed on primary therapy um, by either C125 or CT imaging, we would not consider candidates for interval surgery. Um, but you bring up a good point with regards to the utility of laparoscopy prior to interval cytoreductive surgery. And I, I, I wouldn't say it's something that we've standardized for all of our patients undergoing interval cytoreductive surgery, but we have uh, used it here uh, for specific patient populations, specifically those that have had minimal response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So yes, they've achieved some partial, partial response, but the patients still have considerable uh, disease on imaging or if they have stable disease, uh, which we have seen. Um, and we... Uh, will perform a diagnostic laparoscopy prior to interval cytoreductive surgery. We, we don't use a formal scoring system at that time. It's more just a kind of a visual inspection. And with our experience of laparoscopy at primary surgery, we feel that we've become quite comfortable with how to assess tumors laparoscopically and, and what we think would be resectable. Now, Dr. Fogoti has published on uh, an algorithm that you can use at the time of interval surgery, um, specifically looking at um, several areas, including mesenteric retraction, uh, bowel infiltration, uh, stomach infiltration, and uh, superficial liver metastases. Um, and again, assigning this predictive index value score and anything above four, uh, she found had a positive predictive value of 100% for a suboptimal resection. So there is an algorithm that can be utilized. Uh, we don't utilize uh, this scoring algorithm for all of our patients undergoing interval surgery, but it, it is something that can be used. So now I'm actually also interested in hearing your thoughts with regards to the question that uh, continues to come up, and it seems like more recently this uh, this is a, a recurring theme with regards to the use of laparoscopy for actually performing the interval cell reduction, particularly in the patients who have had a complete response or a very good partial response. What are your thoughts with regards to actually, I mean, obviously you're evaluating by laparoscopy, and if you see that there's really minimal or any disease, why not just continue by laparoscopy? What, what are your thoughts? Right. It is something that we have done here. I would say about 10% uh, of our cases here at MD Anderson are performed uh, by a minimally invasive approach for interval surgery. Um, it is something that I think we need to know more about the quality and safety uh, and survival outcomes in the patients that we do uh, resect by a minimally invasive surgical approach. Uh, so I hope that we uh, have the opportunity to participate in clinical trials uh, in the near future with regards to this. Um, so I think we don't really know the, the safety of it, but um, I mean, Obviously, the goal of the surgery is complete gross resection, and whether it's done by an open versus a minimally invasive surgical approach, um, I think as long as you're achieving the goal right now, I think it can be utilized. But definitely, I would encourage uh, uh, when clinical trials do become available for, for everyone to participate in that. So that's great. And um, now I wanted to kind of jump to the point of surveillance. And obviously, you've gone through the process of the initial upfront treatment, be it primary cytoreduction followed by adjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy and interval cytoreduction with subsequent chemotherapy. Um, what do you think should be the best evaluation for surveillance in patients who have had 
uh, an adequate uh, response. They have had no evidence of disease at, at completion, and certainly provided that they don't go into clinical trials and where they would rut- routinely get imaging studies. Uh, what, what do you think should be the, the standard surveillance for, for our patients? Should we be using more CAT scans or should we be using more PET CTs? Because many patients are asking, why don't we get routine PET CTs during my follow-up? Yes. So we haven't modified our standard surveillance for uh, an advanced ovarian cancer patient. We still primarily rely on clinical exam and CA125. Um, and I think this is still valid because we, we don't have any evidence that uh, detecting cancer recurrence any earlier actually has a prognostic benefit. Um, and I know that's difficult for patients, but it is it is the data, and it's it's true. Um, so we only reserve imaging for CT imaging or more advanced imaging techniques for patients that um, have a rise, or, which is typically a doubling in their nadir CA125, or new symptoms um, in in on one of their surveillance visits. Um, so we would start typically with just a basic uh, contrast-enhanced uh, CT scan, um, and then only move to more advanced imaging techniques such as PET CT or MRI um, in instances where there was a question on uh, the contrast-enhanced CT. Now, Nicole, um, you know, something that seems to be coming up more and more frequently lately, and, you know, it's something that we thought that it was, you know, sort of put to rest many years ago, but um, the issue of second-look surgery or second-look laparoscopy, um, you know, have you heard of uh, institutions now routinely doing second-look um, what do you think is their potential value in, in going back to this approach? Well, it's funny you ask that. Uh, well, here at MD Anderson, we uh, have jumped on the bandwagon of <laughs> uh, revitalizing the second look uh, surgery uh, for a couple different reasons. Um, so, you know, now in the era of lots of different maintenance strategies, for our advanced ovarian cancer uh, patients after a presumed complete uh, response to, uh, to primary therapy. Um, we don't know, of course, the rates of, um, of microscopic residual disease um, because we typically don't take those patients to surgery and don't have any um, biopsies to prove. Um, and these patients subsequently then go on a maintenance treatment uh, and some do well, some others do not, but we don't really have uh, an idea as to why. So we feel here at MD Anderson, um, by offering a patient a second look laparoscopy um, and uh, obtaining tissue biopsies, um, that we can kind of further look into uh, response rates to maintenance therapies. Um, And we do have a clinical protocol that is available for patients that uh, do have uh, microscopic residual disease that is pathologically confirmed uh, for those patients to then uh, go on maintenance bevacizumab. Although this technique and and approach to second-look laparoscopy can be utilized for patients that already plan to undergo um, a maintenance therapy. But I think obtaining the the data from the pathologic kind of tissue analysis is important because we really don't know at this time how many patients are going on a maintenance therapy and they really actually have microscopic residual disease. And is that maintenance therapy um, actually controlling the microscopic residual disease? Or is it, uh, are those the patients that recur the fastest um, versus um, those patients that don't have any microscopic 
pathologically confirmed residual disease, how do those patients do on these different maintenance strategies? So in your practice, you are now routinely offering or discussing this with your patients when they have a complete response? We are. So as a, um, as a faculty group here at MD Anderson, we are now considering that as a part of our standard approach to uh, a new advanced ovarian cancer patient that's completed primary therapy. And as long as their C125 is normalized and by regular contrast enhanced CT imaging, it does appear that they've had a radiographic complete response, uh, then we are offering those patients a second local laparoscopy. So, Nicole, just uh, briefly before we uh, conclude, I wanted to ask you, I heard you uh, recently talking about something really interesting in terms of like future options for, for our patients and uh, some of the really unique uh, and innovative approaches in terms of using, uh, you know, fluorescence to detect where there is tumor in, in, in patients with advanced ovarian cancer after surgery. And I know that this is not, uh, you know, obviously an established practice, but I was wondering if you can share some, some of those uh, thoughts with us. Yeah, I think there's some uh, kind of interesting uh, novel trials as well as um, modalities to potentially uh, enhance the visualization of uh, cancer cells either during uh, a minimally invasive or open uh, surgical approach. Uh, we are uh, trialing uh, different methods, including uh, fluorescence uh, with novel uh, uh, fluorescing type of agents, um, as well as uh, even using kind of handheld devices during open surgery to uh, real-time detect uh, active tumor cells, which can be useful um, in settings of uh, trying to determine complete gross resection, um, as well as uh, at the time of, say, second local laparoscopy in a patient that it does appear grossly to our visible eye that they've had a, a complete response. But if you employ a, an additional imaging modality such as fluorescence, could you uh, detect, you know, microscopic disease even better. So more to come on that. Uh, we are uh, going to be implementing several uh, clinical protocols here at MD Anderson, looking at some of these novel techniques. Well, Nicole, it's been absolutely a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I'm wondering if you had any uh, closing remarks. No, I thank you so much. Um, I was exciting, excited to be here today. And like I said, this is a, my official uh, first uh, podcast, <laughs> so that's very exciting. Um, but I think take-home points is, is, you know, every patient has to be individualized, and there's no right or wrong way to evaluate a patient, but we just have to keep in mind the ultimate goal, which is to try to achieve the best uh, surgical outcome with complete gross dissection um, in the safest possible manner to, um, you know, minimize the morbidity uh, from the surgery. Um, so I think... Um, there's there's no gold standard, but to individualize using some of these techniques. Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much.